Welcome to this episode of Inside Publishing, the series where we interview industry experts on everything publishing. Today's guest is Sam Ward, who is currently working as International Trade Sales Manager for Oxford University Press. Sam's background in the education market offered an insightful conversation on selling books to schools across the globe, as well as digital platforms and even augmented reality. Hi Sam, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm especially excited to pick your brain today because you represent two areas of the industry that are arguably not talked about quite as much, um, which is educational publishing and sales. You're currently working as trade sales manager for Oxford University Press. Um, So can you start by telling us a little bit about your role um, and what exactly it entails day to day? No worries. So um, a lot of the time in um, academic and educational sales teams, the sales teams are divided into sort of different geographically focused teams. So um, where I was before, it was based into UK and Europe as one and then international, whereas OUP, they base it as UK as a separate entity and then sort of Europe and the rest of the world as like the international side. So me and my international remit, I look after sort of all third-party suppliers, so they'll supply anything from like schools to retail outlets, sort of people at home, teachers. The areas that I'm responsible for are the Middle East, the Caribbean islands, and Latin America. So in 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 my sort of remit, as as well as working with the the distributors and the suppliers, I also work with branches that are based on location. Uh, we have educational consultants that are based throughout these continents and countries. They all sort of, uh, we meet weekly to obviously discuss customers and discuss trends in the market. And then internally in the UK, I'll then partner with uh, marketing, product planning, product design, publishers, e- every department basically to ensure that they're up to date with what is emerging like in each market. So yeah, that's my, my job in a nutshell probably. Amazing. So it sounds like you're interacting not only with a lot of different departments within the industry, but actually a lot of different markets and a lot of different types of customer. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was probably probably one of the biggest surprises to a lot of people when you sort of discuss sales or you discuss your job to the outside world is is how much you actually have to do with with publishing. So, you know, when when I did my master's in publishing, 90% of the class wanted to go straight into editorial publishing straight after. Um, and then the reality is how 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 many jobs there are in editorial mm-hmm. and how high the competition is. So sometimes people start to look afield. And, 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 you know, sales is so involved with every department that I thought, well, I'll go into it, I have experience in sales. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I was in it, you realise how much work you do with the editorial team especially. Because, I mean, they effectively are salespeople. They... They go to the academics, to the teachers. They find out what is popular in the market and what needs to be to be written about by contributors and authors. And they have to sell us as a publisher to, to the author. You know, they have to go to the author and say, "Look, you know, I work for OUP. Um, we can do this. We can do that. We're trying to do this." And of course, they have to then sell who they work for. Obviously, sell the products to the end users or to the third parties. Interesting. So other than having that close interaction with the editorial team and the product itself, what would you say was specifically about educational publishing that drew you to it? Um, what was it for you? <laughs> so 
yeah uh, initially i went into the i went into university for the for the course in publishing for the specific reason to, to go to an academic publisher i didn't want to work for for penguin for um for hodder i didn't i didn't want to work for any large trade publisher basically i wanted to just work in academic and the, and the reason well there's a few reasons but i mean i was a teacher once upon a time um but the hours are too much and the pay was too bad so i sort of stepped away from that in the end but the the main reason why i was a teacher was because you know i believe in educating children i believe in educating as many people as possible and then you think of that and you think of the international reach that these large publishers have and you think that you want you want everywhere in the world, you know, the developing countries that don't necessarily have immediate access to certain things or the money to, to access certain things within their countries. I wanted to be able to be involved in some kind of process that provides these countries with, with education that will help them develop and help shape, hopefully, the future of the countries that they live in for tomorrow. So, yeah, it was all just sort of on some, some pipe dream to help improve the education and, and welfare of, of people from developing countries and and just help provide them with non-biased quality educational academic content. Mm, and you mentioned earlier just some of the countries that you do work with, I suppose countries where there are huge disparities of wealth. So I guess you must have seen kind of instances where schools are underfunded, um, where they don't have the right resources that they need. Yeah, so... Yes, if you if you think of my territories and with regards to developing countries, the Caribbean islands, for, for, for one, have have their own issues at, at the moment. Um, the Middle East is is not too bad in some places. You know, you do have Dubai, Saudi Arabia, that very strong currency and strong economy. Um, but you then do also have you know places like Yemen, Iraq, Iran, even you know Palestine, and then Latin America. Again, you know, it, it depends where you are in Latin America, but the issue of of developing countries or poverty is still rife throughout certain countries and certain areas so yeah each of my areas does thank thankfully actually encompass one of the main reasons why I came into publishing. I suppose education having always been a very historically Eurocentric thing anyway it must be really interesting to kind of see beyond that western perspective of things um, and how that translates when selling to the market. How different is it kind of selling to that international market um, in places like the Caribbean compared to perhaps the European or UK market? Oh so different you know before people work in uh, work in publishing they'll probably think well you know it's Europe you know England is Europe, you know, UK is Europe. It's it's amazing the the, the the difference. So for any UK-based publisher, be that OUP who I work for now, Taylor and Francis who I was with before, um, we have Wiley based in Oxfordshire as well, Cambridge University Press. If you sell to a UK-based school or library, etc., it's so much more straightforward because obviously our first language is English. So the sales are normally higher. Same as in the US, obviously. The sales are higher. The first language is English. You will be selling to a massive percentage of, of educational. It, there's more to choose from kind of thing. And then as soon as you get even into the European market. So my last job, I was doing Switzerland, Italy, uh, Germany, uh, Greece, all areas that a lot of the country can speak English. But of course, the first language isn't English. So... When, when I was going in, in my previous role, when I was going into universities and um, into libraries, the percentage of the books you sell into these places was so tiny. You know, you really have to find like these unique selling points for the books and make sure they're definitely relevant to the market. So on top of the language issues, you have price, shipping, you know, 
I mean, our cur- our currency is is the, the the British pound is weak compared to the dinar out in the Middle East, but of course it's a lot stronger than the hay in Brazil. So, currencies also play a massive part when we're thinking about pricing books and we're thinking about that price point. We have to be sensitive to each market and make sure that we're as flexible as possible, because you know, ten Brazilian hay is one English pound, which is crazy. So, you know, a three pound book. It's just going to cost them thirty hayos, which is yeah you know, something you don't really want to consider too much because it just it would put put education out of their reach. Uh, of course, shipping always an issue. You know, Brexit is that topic that everyone loves to talk about, and you get asked about it a million times. Um, I still don't have an answer. Nobody knows. You know, I think we all knew that shipping and distribution would be affected by Brexit. I think that was a given. And it has happened. You know, shipping to Europe or to EU countries has been affected. Uh, the costs have gone up and the times have gone up. So they're sort of now getting a taste for how it is to be, I don't know, um, Egyptian and ordering from OUP. Because, you know, they've had to deal with freight forwarders and ship- and certain shipping charges for years. Whereas the EU is now sort of starting having to see these prices come into their market. And then probably lastly, the difference is the frequency of contact. You know, it's great to be able to see your customers or your partners that you're working with regularly. You know, obviously, you, at the moment in lockdown, we have Zoom calls and we have Microsoft Team calls. It's just not the same. You know, when you see someone in person, you get a feel for body language. You can build a rapport. So I think I think that's a big difference between the UK and European and international. You know, in the UK, you can have that frequency of contact, whereas in the international market, I know I know that I won't see my Dubai partners more than two or three times a year. Well, I mean, just kind of from what you've said there, it sounds like working internationally, there's a lot more variables to kind of consider in your role than perhaps if you were just selling to the UK. So I guess my question next is perhaps if someone was interested in getting an academic or educational publishing, you've mentioned a couple of skills, like obviously kind of communication, multicultural sensitivity. What other kind of skills would be key to um, sort of have if you're interested um, going into educational publishing, or what do you need to be interested in? Yeah, what what a question. So <laughs> a lot of people you ask who go into publishing, initial answer if you say, you know, why are you in publishing? It's probably just something as simple as I love books. I love to read. And I, I, I still think that that holds true. You know, I think if you have a real passion for books, like I do and, and many of my colleagues do, you know, it does show through. Because you are dealing with people, at the end of the day, 80% of them love books. You know, whether they're a librarian, a teacher, whoever you're dealing with, they love books. And it's good to be able to connect over something. You know, I, I'm a massive fan of print books. I, lo- I love a printed article. You know, I've never been one to buy sort of ebooks, et cetera, for my personal use. Um, and, and, I, and I love connecting with with people who also enjoy the, the, the physical product. So one thing, love books, is probably probably paramount to one of the work in publishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if it's educational or academic publishing, you know, you do want to care for the education of people. That's that, 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 like I said earlier, you know, my reasons would be a great reason to get into publishing. And, you know, publishing has become a more and more difficult job to get into. You know, I, I've met so many people over the last few years who have struggled to get into publishing. I know people who have been in publishing for 20 years who, who maybe did a bachelor's degree. They maybe did an undergraduate, but a lot of them didn't. They just sort of got a job in publishing and work their way up the ranks. And and you find that these days, like in this current market, in the amount of people that are interested in publishing, you find more and more that you need the education behind you. So if you want to work in editorial, fantastic. If you want to work in editorial and you've done 
um, a specific degree. So, you know, you've done biology, molecular biology or something, you know, something niche, and then you want to go and work in an editorial in that area of study, fantastic. You know, that is something that publishers do look for. They want the editors and the publishers to be experts in the field that they're obviously working. You know, that's the whole point of educational or academic publishing is to be accurate and to provide solid data. So if you've worked in that field and you know the types of authors that you want to find and you know the research areas that are popular at the moment in that area, then that's definitely something you should shout about because that's a you know, that is a perfect step into, into an ed editorial or publishing capacity. If you haven't got that master's degree and you don't want to, because believe me, it's not it's not needed for publishing, you know, that's, that's, that's preposterous to think it would be, um, work experience, you know, if, if you can dedicate time, I know, again, the current market, people need to work for rent or, or whatever they need to pay. Um, but if you can do some work experience at a publishers, it goes a really long way to show that you are definitely interested in, in the field, you know, with sales, it, it's completely different. The, the, the sales that, that I'm involved with and was involved with is, is is definitely on the, let's say, softer side of sales. You know, it's not a sort of hardcore KPI, make phone calls focused area. So if you want to get into sales in, in publishing, I would suggest having some sales experiences is paramount, probably, depending on what role you're going into. But mainly having a great attitude. You know, the work experience is great. But yeah, you know, show a passion yeah. for it. On that topic, working in bookshops is a fantastic experience as well. So a lot of publishers look for people who have worked as a bookseller. Um, you know, you have good knowledge of different books. You have knowledge of the market. You know, you know, you sort of know market trends and what it, what it needs and wants. So again, that's another good sort of area to come in from. But yeah, in terms of in terms of cover letters, you know. Obviously, try and find find out who the uh, who the interviewer is, who the, who 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 the hiring manager is. It's always a great idea if you can. Uh, if not, of course, you, you know you you just include in the cover letter your passion for books, your passion for education, and I think that's the main thing that stands out to me. Especially if I if I'm look, if I'm looking at people, or it's what I used when I was coming into into my job, uh, my first job, was my passion for education. You know, if you're going to work in educational publishing, why why educational over trade? You know, why? They won't want to hear because of the money, although that may be a reason for some people. They'll want to hear it's because you do care about shaping people's futures and you, you want to help them improve. You want to help them be better than their parents were and their parents before them. And they'll do that with quality, unbiased educational content. At places like OUP, places like TNF, um, Hodder Education, you know, Pearson, they all provide quality educational products for these kids to learn and you need to show in, in an interview uh, if you get that far or, or in the application process that you do genuinely have a passion for helping educate people and then on top of that just be nice be a nice person you know everyone that i've worked with in publishing is, is, is a nice per it's a great industry to work in the companies and how they work their ethos um, the work-life balance it's incredible i've never worked somewhere outside of an educational academic publisher so far that has been as as accommodating comfortable and friendly to work in you know, you're surrounded by like-minded people and, and and that's and that's another reason why it's important to be positive and be passionate about books and education because they they hire those people and then you get into the job and you realize that the reason why you like these people so much is because they all care the same way you care they care about the books they care about the markets they care about children's education and it's great so Positive, proactive, 
have have an interest in education i'd say i'd say they're they're pretty key to um to uh, when you apply yeah brilliant that's really great sage advice i totally agree with you on all those points there and you briefly alluded to study there so when you went and did your publishing masters would you say that there was a fair amount of focus on educational and academic um, just as much as there was on trade. I imagine a lot of students go in with the focus um, of a kind of more trade mindset. Yeah, absolutely. So I knew the company I wanted to work for before going into the course. So I, I lived I lived very close to uh, Taylor Francis at the time. Um, I knew I wanted to work there. So for me, I was academic focused from the start. But of course, you're right. I mean, I, I would definitely say three quarters of the class were trade focused, massively trade focused. I got a funny story actually about that at the end. But... <laughs> So firstly, you're right, you know, people do go in that trade mindset. I think it shocked so many people that were there. It was basically like doing a master in science. I mean, it's a, it's a master of arts, by the way, anyway, but it was like doing a master of science. You know, there was so much business proposals and plans and spreadsheets, costings, profit and loss shit. It was, it was crazy, I think, the amount of business work you actually had to do in the master's in public, which I think shocked a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they also do offer in the second half of, uh, in the second semester, they offer you to obviously make selections on modules you, you want to look more into. Uh, and I did choose academic as a module to study. So yeah, you know, they're, yeah. they're definitely, yeah. they, they definitely sort of um, G you up for it. And then the story <laughs> on that is, so yeah, three quarters of the class, trade publishing, right? You know, they're, they're obsessed with, I don't know, Penguin, Faber, you know, whoever, they, they, they've, They've got a big passion for, for, for trade publishers. And I think, so let's say there were six, I think there were roughly 60 people in my in my master's class. And I definitely think at least 20, 25 of them work in academic publishing, be that OUP or Taylor and Francis or Wiley. Oh. So they didn't even go into trade publishing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so why do you think that is? I'm assuming you studied um were you at brooks if you if you're based in oxford yes sorry yeah 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 so i suppose it might have something to do with the fact that oxford is already kind of a place with a lot of academic opportunities but what would you say kind of changed people's minds like it's a good question i mean oup and tnf both have thousands of employees and in in, in their offices in oxfordshire they have around one to two thousand employees head office so you know that's quite a large number of employees that they hire quite a large number of people a year. So yeah, you're right. You know, you're in a place like Oxfordshire, you've just finished your master's. I imagine a lot of the publishing jobs in the area would have been academic or educational for sure. I imagine the main draw perhaps unromantically is probably money. People do get paid more in academic and educational publishing in the long term. The hours are nowhere near as bad. Uh, the pay is not fantastic considering you're in London and you know, it's, it's just a long day. In trade publishing, it's a very long day. Um, and it takes a while to sort of get to a position, I think, where you're more comfortable. Whereas academic publishing, educational publishing, because the products are so much more expensive, the profit margins naturally are, are higher. There's more money sort of to, 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 to invest into uh, employ- employees and, and products. Yeah, and I guess just on the topic of investing in products there, we know that academic publishing is kind of leaning towards obviously more digital publishing at the moment. What are we kind of seeing happening in terms of technology in academic publishing specifically? Are you able to talk briefly about that? Uh, again, it's funny. It's back in the early 2000s, you know, let's say 05, there was, there was forever talk that the ebook had come and print books were dead, you know. Um, 
never quite materialised. The the split in academic publishing, the company I was at was still um, sort of 70-30 print to digital was the revenue, the annual revenue at Taylor and Francis. And then moving into educational publishing at OUP, I'd say it's even higher to print to digital. You know, it's crazy, I think. I think sometimes a lot of people from the outside in will sort of think that ebooks are on the rise or, you know, ebooks will take over print. I don't think that would ever happen, personally. I think maybe 50-50 at the worst or the best, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, but I don't think ebooks will ever fully overtake print books. Obviously, with COVID, it's been paramount for education, um, educational publishers to offer at least a blended approach, you know, at least a mix of digital and print, which I think OUP, from the looks of it, sort of found challenging at the start, you know, that, that they've overcame it and they found ways to supply to the market. But not all educational publishers would have had digital products at the ready. Now, a main reason for that in international markets is, as we mentioned earlier, you know, you've got emerging markets that you're dealing with. A lot of these countries aren't as wealthy as, let's say, a European one. And these countries in particular won't have necessary access to laptops, tablets, great internet service. You know, and all of this relies ebooks, um, audiobooks that come digitally. They, they rely on a good internet connection and the end user having the ability to actually use the product. Yeah, you find challenges in that way with regards to digital publishing, whether that's ebooks. Um, journals are slightly different because they're offered to academic libraries at institutes and they're offered on perpetual subscription basis. So that is beneficial. You know, libraries can use less space at universities. They can provide more space for their students to study and keep sort of academic journals rather than in old dusty bookshelves in the corner of a library, they can have the more on an electronic database that students can access from anywhere. So, you know, yeah. I think I think for digital purposes, journals are, uh, are fantastic. You know, I, I don't know about you, when I, was at U, when I was at uni, I accessed journals all the time through platform from anywhere, you know? It was, it was so ideal. Whereas eBooks, which are, which are the focus in educational because educational uh, don't tend to look into journals, Ebooks are slightly different. You know, we have to we have to rely on market demand and what the market can use and will use. And yeah, let's just say it's been a really fun time the last few months trying to help customers who have predominantly bought print books for the last goodness knows how long and trying to help them access digital products um, and digital training material. It's 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 been fun. Obviously, you mentioned that digital isn't always an accessible option just then, but um, does that resistance you kind of refer to there? like that tradition of always kind of just having had the physical product, just being used to using the physical thing. Do you think that sounds in a way of moving to digital for some customers or publishers? Um, I guess we're starting to learn to embrace it now, but do you see that resistance? Have you kind of seen that firsthand? Well, massively. People, people don't want to sit in front of a computer screen or a you know, tablet screen all day and then, you know, whether that's with their job or with their schooling, and then have to then go to another screen to carry on reading or learning. You know, sometimes you just want to get your eyes away from from the, the glare. And funny enough, we've actually found during COVID and coming towards the end of lockdowns in certain areas that it's not what they thought. You know, they missed the print book. They missed the ability to have it in their hands. And um, it's, pro- it's probably been a great marketing tool for, for print books, print publishing, you know, uh, the lockdowns, because it, it, it's, worked, it's worked very much in their favour. And a lot of students who at the end of the day are the ones that matter the most, you know, because if they can't engage with the digital content, 
then they're not going to learn. So, of course, sooner or later, it, the, the products match what the students need. A lot of them just seem to still want the, the, the print products. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I feel like I can put my hand up and say I'm definitely one of those people that enjoys yeah. the physical thing. Um, so it's always going to be a difficult transition, I think, getting away from that. But at the same time, like you've briefly mentioned, it's showing that we can kind of reach a more global audience mm-hmm. through going digital and there's definitely its upsides to it. It seems like educational publishing is maybe where you get the most out of technology though. Um, I'm just thinking of things like um, tools for educational purposes that use things like augmented reality um, and then there's obviously the whole discussion around open access which I suppose has its own kind of digital reach. Um, I think that's probably the coolest thing. I, I, the coolest thing with digital at the moment <laughs> I think that the average user or listener would, would, would want to hear about would be augmented reality for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I did a research project on it uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, and there was this movement from Pearson uh, who partnered with Microsoft. Microsoft had already brought out these uh, the Holo- HoloLens goggles that, that, that were sort of um, augmented reality. And Pearson sort of saw something here, you know, that, that, that they saw that there was an opportunity for them to use these goggles in an educational format. So what they did was they partnered with nursing schools predominantly and they released apps to go alongside this HoloLens product. Now, augmented reality, if people that don't quite know what it is, these people put these goggles on. Okay, which is the Microsoft side, right? So the Microsoft owner goggles, that's 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 Microsoft's sort of part and obviously um, developing the app. Pearson are involved in developing the app, but also providing a print product to go alongside it, which sounds weird. But with this print product, it fully engages with the HoloLens goggles. And they would quite literally, let's say as a medical student, they'd quite literally be able to drag a drag a heart from the textbook to in front of them, still being able to see their, their, the professor, their students around them, and right in front of them, they'd have a heart that they could dissect, take apart, without actually having to use a physical one. At, you know, I, I don't know the costs involved in, in Godivers, in, in medical products that they have to use in, in educational facilities. But yeah, it's just a really cool product that they trialled um, and is now in nursing schools. And it just lets them interact with their field of study as well as still seeing the world around them. At the same time. Well, I mean, that's yeah, so it's, cool. it's super cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stuff like that, I would have never even thought about or kind of associated with educational publishing. So, yeah, that kind of thing is incredibly cool. I think a lot of people would definitely be interested in that side of it. I guess it's fair to say that's the, the future of educational publishing. There's not too many publishing houses embracing augmented reality just yet. Can you imagine the cost with uh, a pair of goggles that can do that? I mean, it's opened the door for other things. You know, if you went if you went into Google or YouTube and searched for, say, Alice in Wonderland augmented reality, I think it would take you to some expo that was um, in the States and it shows some amazing stuff they did with a trade book for, from this technology. It's, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's a cool little watch and it shows sort of what... And I quite like it. You know, I don't, I don't know if in the future it's going to be financially viable, but I know that if I was a, if I was a young kid again and, and I was given the option to use a pair of augmented reality glasses and, and, and get to fully interact with a book or or with organs from a human body or a plant, you know, anything. I mean, you know, goodness me, surely every kid would, would absolutely love that. 
So yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the future holds for it, but it's it's fantastic technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with open access, you know, that's been an ongoing debate for a long time, long before I was in publishing, and it's a, it's a difficult one. So from from the consumer's point of view, they want. Well, from, well, from the end user's point of view, they don't really care who's paid for it as long as they can access the the article, right? If you're at university, you you don't you, you know you don't you, you you don't know where the money comes from. You just access that article now, or the you know the journal now. The libraries will pay for that. The libraries have a budget every year from the university that they're given, which is ever which is ever decreasing because I, I'm sure you saw when you're at university, you know, libraries. The actual physical book space in a library decreases as the social space where students can interact and sit together and do work has sort of increased. Um, so you know, their budget decreases and they have to try and find ways where they can still provide the journals to all of their students so they can access. Now, so far, that's how it's happened. The, the universities, the libraries pay their subscription each year for a certain amount of journals that they want for limited access for students. What the movement has been is that the publishers pay for the content. Now, great for the universities. Again, students won't really mind too much how it comes about. But, you know, there are a lot of costs for a publisher to release a journal. It's you know, the person who's done the who's done the academic journal is paid on behalf of the publisher. They're paid royalties. You know, you have the editorial, the copyright fees, editor fees, uh, typesetting fees. So many different little fees that just come into the 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 release of like one article, one journal. That you know, the publisher sort of footing the bill for journals just isn't always financially possible. So. You'll see as as you sort of look into academic publishing, the argument around um, open access, green and gold access, and the difference between the two. It's worth <clears throat> it's worth a read. It's worth looking into. You know, everyone will form their own opinions as to whether publishers can afford to do it, or whether the libraries should continue to to pay for the access. It's interesting, um, but it, it's it's an ongoing argument and probably not one that's going to end anytime too soon. We all want educational to be universally accessible. I mean, publishers will, publishers will find the money from somewhere. They'll, char they'll charge something else or they'll get the money from some other way. As long as it's free to the, the library or the end user, that's obviously, yeah, for people like, you know, people like us and, and future, future educators, that's probably what they care about the most is just making sure that they can access free. Absolutely, definitely. I totally agree with you there. And I know you've already kind of touched on digital, but are there any other kind of trends or kind of shifts in educational publishing that we're seeing at the minute? Obviously, I imagine it's a much more stable market than perhaps trade. Um, but is there anything else that kind of we might be looking out for? Do you know, I wouldn't say so. I think the book market is a very is a very simple market. You know, it's a, just about making sure the content is reliable and quality. Which, which you know, you would assume and hope that large academic and educational publishers do do have. You know, they have the ability to make sure the content is proper. At the moment in educational publishing, um, especially at OUP, there's there's this drive to make sure that we have the platforms needed that people can access ebooks and digital content. Because you know, it's not just the ebooks that we want them to access. It's it's webinars that that we've recorded internally. It's training videos for teachers and educators that we again we've recorded and provided internally 
So a big drive to try and improve the whole digital infrastructure in, in, in OUP and in other educational publishers to make sure that these international countries as well as the UK countries can understand the content, engage with it, and also just take the snippets of information from our online platform that we're going to provide. At the moment, we provide ebooks through ebook uh, third-party ebook ebook suppliers. So, if a customer wants to order an ebook, funny enough, it sounds strange that they, they, they wouldn't come through me. They would have to order it through a third-party ebook supplier. Now, of course, if OUP manages to set up their own platform, their own ebook platform and provider where they can supply the content, then then of course it will make the process a lot more easy for the end user. So at the moment, I would say that is definitely an area of concentration. And it was it was the same at TNF before I left there. Exactly the same. The ebook platform at TNF was sort of overlooked. And I think you know it's funny you know you say about this this trend towards digital and providing the world with more easily accessible content. It's it's, it's funny and sad at the same time because you sort of think well actually because ebooks haven't really been that sought after compared to print. I feel like the platforms within these large companies have been sort of neglected. So the end user doesn't necessarily have the access you would want them to have to the digital content. Yeah, print book, fine. You know, we'll send it, they'll receive it as soon as possible. Not a problem. But the ebook platforms, they've missed that sort of TLC for the last 10 years because their ebook sales didn't really grow as expected. But yeah, maybe with COVID. And the way that people have worked from home um, during the lockdowns, maybe that's going to start pushing publishers to improve their own platforms for ebooks and their own digital sort of resource pages that um, educators and third parties can access. So before we round this up, um, is there any other advice that you'd like to give to people who are interested in either moving into or starting a career in educational? Um, do you have any resources you'd like to share with us or anywhere else that you can point us to for some more some more educational material? Yeah. Um, so on that note, you know, if, if people want to look further into it, um, the bookseller is always a popular newsletter um, to sign up to. Um but other than, other than the other than the bookseller, one hundred percent subscribe to the social media channels of educational and academic publishers. They always update their pages with new trends or emerging themes or content that they've been creating. Um, you know, they all have dedicated social media teams that will regularly be be putting the content out there for people to see. Follow the IPA, which is the International Publishing Association. Um, they're always good to follow. Uh, and yeah, I'd, I'd, say, I'd, I'd say that they, if you follow those things, you're, you're probably doing a pretty good job of keeping up to date with the academic and educational publishing market. Amazing. Go follow all of those things. Um, Sam, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. It's been an absolute pleasure. I said earlier, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, hopefully some people get something from it. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Publishing. I've been Rosie Webster and that was Sam Ward from Oxford University Press. For more episodes like this, don't forget to subscribe.